Hello and welcome to the Compassion Club podcast. My name is Scott. I'm here with my co-founder, Sam. So, it's our first inaugural podcast today. How exciting. It is very exciting, isn't it? Yeah. So, how are you feeling about our first podcast? I've suddenly decided that I am an expert podcaster. No, no, I am the expert podcaster. That is true. I remember I was the one that went on the one-day community college had podcast course. That is true. You've got the, <laughs> the invoice to, to prove it. <laughs> so, what did we talk about in our first podcast? We did talk about uh, our journey to mindfulness. We talked about the Compassion Club and what that is. Correct. We talked about uh, John Kabat-Zinn in a very off-topic discussion, who he was. What mindfulness is. Yes, we did talk about what mindfulness is. We talked a little bit about suffering, anxiety, we stress, did. and yes. how mindfulness can help you. We talked about a crazy lady called the Green Goddess, um, which was how I actually found mindfulness. And that, that was quite a, an interesting, colourful story. Yes, very good story. I think we talked a little bit about what's coming up for us next. Yes. So please enjoy our 40-minute conversation about the Compassion Club, all those things above. Go to our website and have a look at our blog. It's updated regularly and enjoy. So if anyone's listening, our website is www.compassionclub.com.au. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to the Compassion Club. My name is Scott. I'm here with my co-founder of the Compassion Club, Sam. Say hello, Sam. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is our first podcast, so we're going to try and uh, see how this goes. We've got some formal questions to ask, but this is really an opportunity for us to talk about what the Compassion Club is, why we wanted to do it, and this is the first step towards building a longer uh, podcast where we'll delve into a whole bunch of different things. Um, we've got some topics planned already, but let's just see how we go first time. Opportunity for people to get to know you, people to get to know me. So just so we can overcome this whole process, I'm going to ask you some questions to get started. So Sam, tell me, why did you start the Compassion Club? Well, thanks, Scott. Nothing like being in a hot seat on the first podcast, hey? So why did I start the Compassion Club? What a great question. Um, I started the Compassion Club really because I wanted to do something to help people become happier and... I've been working in the corporate world for pretty much half my life now, and I'm going to be 40 in two months' time. So that's that's you know almost 20 years of working in the corporate world, and I think for most of those years, I myself have suffered uh, with being unhappy in my job, uh, with work-life balance, with stress, with pressure, and I just got to the point where I felt like I needed to do something different and I needed to give something back and I've been really fortunate that in my life outside of work I've been a long-term meditator and yoga practitioner and have had some really, I guess, inspired and amazing experiences um, travelling around the world, studying with different people, mindfulness and I've always had a bit of a toolkit that I could use when I was at work to help me to get through those stressful moments and... Um, got to the point now where I just want to share them with other people and I want to make a difference in that corporate world. Mm. I want I want people to be happier. Mm. So you want to take the experience that you've had with these things that have enhanced your life and you want to share it with other people so that they can have the same experience? Yeah, I do. And I feel like for me, I've always led, um, led a, like a double life. So there's sort of like Samantha, the corporate person mm. that works you know, officially nine till five, more like eight till eight, Monday to Friday. And then there's Sam, the yogi, who's the person that, you know, I am on the weekend. And on the weekend, I'm really carefree and happy and relaxed. 
Um, and then when I'm at work Monday to Friday, it's like I become a different person. And I feel like I've always had this sort of dual life. And, you know, the two lives have never really crossed over. Mm. Um, but, you know, a few years ago, I made a very conscious and deliberate decision mm. um, after a sort of a few life-changing events, which I'm sure we'll get to later in the podcast, to not have that, you know, duality anymore, that I actually really wanted to be the same person on Monday morning at work that I would be at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. Um, so it was a, a conscious decision to start the Compassion Club um, and it was a very conscious decision to try and bring my whole self to work mm. but also to take my whole self home again and I I just didn't want there to be this division and I didn't see any reason why people couldn't be happier at work and just simple practices of kind, kindness, mindfulness, treating people with dignity and respect, some of the things that are such core values, so simple, but so many people just, you know, in the corporate world, look over those things mm. and, and, and don't give them the importance that they need. Mm. Um, so that, I guess, gave me the idea for the Compassion Club, you know, and I allowed myself some time to think about how how nice the corporate world could be if you could actually come to work and show up as yourself mm. uh, rather than, you know, putting on your corporate persona. I, I feel the same way. Mm. I think that you and I both have been in the corporate world for a long time and have both either experienced firsthand or seen other people that you know they're going through their lives, either they're miserable and, they're, and it comes out in their behaviour day to day or... Um, they've got a corporate face on and you feel like that can't be the real you like and what is it that there's a veil there that's right mm. it's like a mask that you're mm. wearing and it's not pleasant to deal with i think as people that are trying to work together and collaborate working with someone like that is really hard because you can't really read them in terms of what are your real motivations and what and how are we aligned and not that it's all about just those things but it just doesn't make it a pleasant experience. And so I have had similar experiences too. And and um, I don't think I had the clarity that perhaps that you did in terms of having two different people. My, um, my, um, my challenge was uh, I'm quite a loud person. I'm a super enthusiastic. And it can come across sometimes, particularly in places like Westpac, where I've also worked, as being disruptive or not <laughs> towing the line and stuff like that. And if you're uh, maybe a conservative person or someone who really wants to have things in, in control, I feel to some people like I'm bucking the system all the time. And so um, I found it very hard to reconcile the person that I was internally with what was happening inside those environments where I had to really curtail who I was. And then it cuts to the core of, well, who, who am I? Am I prepared to compromise who I am? Or can I find a way to be real at work and authentic and still, but not upset people along the way? So um, I think there was a bit from both for me. You know, I had, I've been meditating like you for a very long time. I'm certainly not a yoga instructor, um, but, but my meditation practice, you know, allows the opportunity to sort of see internally about what's happening to you. How do you behave in certain, certain situations? And my behavior wasn't always exemplary either, but, um, you know, I think over time you start to be able to have that process of self-examination and identify the things in you that are maybe upsetting other people and be able to account for that. And so for me, not dissimilar to you, as I went through that process of self-discovery, I wanted to be able to share that same experience with other people because ultimately we both feel that you get a better result at work if you're able to be truly who you are, 
bring some authenticity to it and express yourself in a meaningful way because you you feel like you're not pretending to be something that you're not. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a little bit of a, a sore throat yeah, today. I think we'll let you off this time. <laughs> Thank you. I think authenticity at work is just is such a huge thing and so many people I think struggle with being their self at work and it I know you've got something you pithy you're going to tell me <laughs> <laughs> they do struggle I know I see the same thing they do struggle to be themselves at work because I think a lot of people um say to me oh Sam you know mindfulness that's that's such a sort of a hippie concept mm. you know it's you know a lot of stigma attached to it people think that they're just you know sitting around cross-legged chanting you know with joysticks and that if they start practicing mindfulness or start practicing authentic compassionate leadership it's going to sort of weaken their position and to me it's really about you know if if you are practicing mindfulness and authentic leadership you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable yes and i think for a lot of people leaders in particular being vulnerable can be a really scary, challenging thing because you really are putting yourself on the line. But it gets easier with practice. And I think the thing is, if we can all kind of like shed some of that corporate veil, then we just come together and we connect as people on a one-to-one level. And it just cuts through all the nonsense. It just means you're actually having heartfelt conversations with people. It cuts through the politics. You can make decisions a lot quicker. You can actually get things done better. People, you know, who who doesn't want to have an honest conversation? Mm, I with think someone? you're right. Yeah, there is, it really does present the opportunity to um, say truly what you mean mm. without having to do with many words or hide it. Yeah. Cut straight to the core without, and know that the person on receiving that end of the conversation isn't going to arc up and you know react negatively or have some terrible response to it. Yeah. Um, I think you know whether it's on a personal level or an organizational level or a national level or in a global level because we both feel the same way that we're trying to um, change people at the grassroots level for the betterment of humanity, not just the organizations or themselves personally. Um, yeah, it's so key, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other thing for me is, is sort of like the direct correlation between mindfulness and mental illness and mindfulness and stress. Mm. And there is just so much research now coming out of really reputable places like Harvard and Stanford Mm. um, around the neuroscience of mindfulness and how it changes your brain. It actually strengthens your immune system, increases your creativity, reduces your chance of having or developing mental illness. If you have mental illness, increases your chance of recovering from it. It's Mm. just really, really powerful. And the practices are not actually that difficult. They're really simple things. And... For me, mindfulness is a skill, like any other skill, like coaching, negotiation, selling, that you just need to learn. Mm. And, you know, people say to me, you know, is it really that easy? It is if you have a practice yes. and you put you put time into it. I love the quote, which is, <laughs> it's, it's simple but not easy. And I think the only not mm. easy part of it is, like you said, it's about having the practice. Mm. It's about having some dedication to it. It's a gradual process that continues to pay dividends as you go along. And I'm sure you feel the same way that my practice personally over a long period of time, it's been a bit like an onion, you know, that I find there's another layer and another layer and another layer. I'm not trying to be Mm. too high-minded, but the layers we're talking about are layers of me. Mm. You know, I find out truly the way I feel about things and um, what's important to me and what's not. 
and, and it's a deepening of that process of self-discovery. And when I do meditation classes, there's a quote I love to say to show to the people in the room, which is meditation is an appointment with yourself. You know, and I know you feel the same way. It is about the process of allowing yourself to um, experience who you are in a really meaningful way. And I always try and talk about it in terms of um, it's like maintaining a car. You know, it's objective. And I, and I hear what you're saying, you know, that the perception of it's sort of, you know, sitting cross-legged in a dark room with joysticks and music mm. playing and that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's not that. You know, it is a It really, is that for some people. There it but, is. That's true. Yes. It doesn't and, have and, to be know, that. And that's mm. valid in their experience. Oh, absolutely. Them, yeah. I think yeah. in you know particularly in a corporate setting yeah. it you know you don't even have to close your eyes if you don't want Correct. to you know you you can have a soft gaze there's it's a very accessible medium for most people i i equate it to this mm. idea of car maintenance only in as much as in the same way if there's a problem with your car or or even better still that you need to maintain it with a service regularly this is the same process you're really opening up internally and just seeing oh, what's going on inside of me right mm. now and what are the things I need to change or correct or can I just be aware of what's happening mm. and then I can make decisions later on about what to do and obviously you and I can talk for hours about the ongoing benefits yeah. of those things and that's you know plenty of opportunity that on the website in the future um, but I really think the simplicity of it is the key part. It's so accessible, like you said, anybody can do it. But I want to ask you another question. Of course. I, I want to know, um, you know, about your history, what led you to this point, you know, that you've got a long history there and it's a really entertaining and interesting journey mm. that brought you to where you are. And I think we also need to talk about how you and I met too, but we'll come to that. I want to, want, you know, yeah. want to hear about the process for you. Yeah, so my, I guess my first experience of meditation and mindfulness really really came out of yoga and mm. um really with my mum what happened to you so I was interested yeah, in how did you come to yoga like had, that's yeah not... I kind of came to yoga when I was sort of like 15 or 16 and my mum used to sort of when we had back in the days when we had VHS mm. uh before before blu-ray or Netflix <gasps> um she always used to do this yoga video with this lady called the green goddess who used to wear um this green leotard uh, you know, it was green leggings. It was awful. Um, but it, it doesn't give a good name for it, yoga it, it generally, does it? It doesn't give a good name. Yeah. But in, in sort of back in the day in the 80s, this lady was, was really hugely popular and she yeah. had a very soothing, relaxing voice. Yeah. And she sort of did this sort of, these sort of crazy yoga poses that my mum tried to do and I sort of tried to copy. But at the end, you sort of got to lie down on the floor for five minutes and relax. And yeah. she sort of had lovely sort of ocean music and she sort of did a bit of a guided visualization is it like shavasana a bit like shavasana yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. um and i was like wow this this is really qu- quite amazing and then i when i started sort of doing actual yoga classes i remember my one of my first classes i did like where that i actually had to pay to go to was when i was at uni when i was sort of 18 19 and it was in a gym and they had a spin class going on at the same time as the yoga class oh wow um, and it was a really, really challenging type of yoga. And I remember thinking, how is this relaxing? But you had to pay so much attention to be in the pose. Mm. I realized I hadn't sort of mentally gone shopping at all for that whole hour. Like mm. I was, you know, trying to do a headstand or trying to be in a pose with one leg, that all my attention really had to be on my body. Mm. And then it was kind of perhaps not the best yoga class in the world. And 
for anyone listening to this, yoga's got heaps better over the years. So don't <laughs> use this as your experience of, of yoga. The, the sort of yoga instructor shouted to the spin instructor, lights off, quiet time. <laughs> and um, the people in the spin class just had to start cycling very quietly. very quietly. All the lights went off in the gym and we were sort of like instructed to just lie on this sort of semi-concrete floor. And I remember thinking, what, what is happening? This is just bizarre. <laughs> and then just lying down and just, you know, putting the backs of my hands on the floor and just lying on this cold floor and just this sense of relaxation coming over me. Mm. It was, I felt like I was lying on a cloud and it was just amazing. Mm. I just felt so relaxed and, uh, you know, really didn't want to come out of this. And I think that was really my first experience of a sort of Shavasana style meditation. Mm. The, the unfortunate thing was it took me about another six years to get that level of relaxation again mm. in a yoga class. And mm. they say sometimes in your first class, you sort of glimpse nirvana. You, mm. you get that glimpse of what it's like. Mm. Um, but it was enough to hook me in. And I, from that point on, started practicing yoga every day. Mm. And at the end of my practice, used to sit for five minutes and just sit still and just be with my thoughts and my breath. Um, and it was just something that grew over time and mm. I, I started dabbling in different types of meditation and tried a whole heap of things some of them worked for me and some of them didn't and probably sort of about 10 years after that sort of in my early 30s I really found mindfulness and that was so much more accessible for me and mm. I guess for anyone listening and thinking you know we've been talking about mindfulness for a while now what is mindfulness Mindfulness is a type of meditation, uh, there's many types of meditation, but mindfulness is a type of meditation where you really focus on being in the present moment um, and you become the observer of yourself and of your thoughts. Mm. And more importantly, you don't judge what's coming up for you. So it's almost like you have a movie reel running across your forehead of all the thoughts and different things are kind of coming up for you. And you just you're kind of just watching it from afar. You're not really getting caught up in the story of what's mm. going on in your mind. You're not, you know, if you're thinking, oh, I've got to go shopping. You're not thinking, when am I going to go? What have I got to buy? Is the chicken non-special? You're you're just like, oh, I'm noticing that I'm thinking I need to go shopping, and you become aware of your thoughts, of your feelings, your body, and it's a really tangible practice because there are things that your mind can kind of grasp onto in that practice and for me once I discovered mindfulness I really you know a lot of the other meditation practices that I was experimenting with sort of fell away because I, I just found this one really worked for me um so going back to why how I kind of got into well, it can I jump in yeah. and just say I just want to say one thing so mm. while we're talking about mindfulness I think something that I like to really really reinforce mm. and you touched on is that when you're in that process of meditating and being mindful you're aware of all the thoughts and I think the part that I really I like to focus on when I'm teaching is um, there are so many thoughts we're unaware of that we've got going on every day right and it is an opportunity to open up your, the drain of your mind and see what all that all that noise that's going on in there and just quietly pair that away and give yourself some space in the day and I think that's really key that that's where true freedom resides, you know, that that opportunity just to be away from our own thoughts. And I think even the greatest meditators in the world would say they still struggle with that. That never goes away. It's just opening up your awareness to those things. Uh, and one other thing that quickly comes to mind is 
I really like to, to sort of reinforce that what you're also doing is bringing in another level of consciousness, small c, I'm not talking about <laughs> something amazing or God or anything like that, but what you end up with is part of your mind is observing another part of your mind. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the observer, you're, you're bringing another level of consciousness in that sees the thoughts that you're having without being involved in those. And I think that that is a way that every day we're not used to operating in, but it is an opportunity to have some objectivity and, and just sit outside and see what's really going on inside of us. So I apologise for interrupting you. I want no, to hear the rest I, of your story. I think there's some really good things sometimes we need to go deep on, and I think no, that's, that's, that's an one area. Of them, right? yeah. De- definitely. Yeah. And I, I think let's just, while we're on that topic, just yeah. you know round that out a little bit yeah. more because often you know your first experience of, of any kind of meditation or mindfulness is... Sometimes the first time you've sat with yourself and you've allowed yourself to be still. Yes. And for many people that can be really, really confronting. Mm. And, you know, I sort of describe myself as a type A personality. I I tick many of those boxes. So for me to actually just allow myself to just sit down and be with myself and and to pause. um, Mindfulness is really like a mirror that you hold to yourself and what you see in the reflection is exactly what's going on so you know if you sit down and you're really still and you've had a totally crazy day and you've been running around your mind is going to be busy Mm. if if you're feeling really really tired when you meditate you're probably going to feel a bit sluggish it's for me mindfulness isn't always pretty and you know Mm. unicorns and rainbows and you you come away feeling amazing most of the time I would say after practicing I feel better than I did before yes but sometimes especially in the early stages it brings up a lot of stuff for people because we very rarely allow ourselves the luxury of just being Mm. Um, so So I had a great quote funnily enough that Mm. came up today that was presented to me and I share it with you today because I really love it it's by John Kabat-Zinn and he's a great master as we know of mindfulness uh, mindfulness, in the west that's right and it says it tends to be a momentous occasion to intentionally or I should focus sorry intentionally uh, stop all your outward activity and just as an experiment sit or lie down and open to an interior stillness with no other agenda than to be present for the unfolding of your moments perhaps for the first time in your adult life. And I really love that idea that he's just saying, just try, because you may never have done this as an adult. You know, just see what happens when you lie down for a few minutes and just be quiet and just try and observe what's going on. And I think it is, um, like you said, you have that moment where you suddenly realize it may not be Nirvana, you know, that Mm. first time for everybody, but certainly you have a different experience to go, hang on a second, there's something else going on inside of me that I had no idea was happening. Mm. Yeah. And John Kabat-Zinn, what an inspiration. I mean, he has just transformed so many people's lives with his teachings Mm. and um, someone that that I still to this day study from and every time I I hear him speak, I learn something. And Mm. I was actually listening to him this morning to a talk he gave sort of in the 1980s. So Mm. really, really... Such tremendous history there for that man. And he was, you know, one of the students in his class was, was saying to him, John how do I do this yeah. meditation? And mm. and he said, well, you don't actually need to do anything. You need to be. Yes. And mindfulness is about being more, not doing more. Yes. And um, you need to approach this with almost no end goal in mind. Yes. And I think that's quite a hard concept for many people because 
one of the reasons people are drawn to practicing mindfulness and meditation is because maybe they are stressed, they have anxiety, you know, they they want to try and come up with some solution to their problems. Mm. So they they're going into it with a very clear, you know, agenda outcome. Yes, that's right. They want to achieve something from yes. their practice and when you really get into John Kabat-Zinn's teachings, he's really saying, well, your experience is your experience. Mm. Whatever happens, happens. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it made you feel better or feel... It, that is mindfulness. Yes. It's being in the moment. You're exactly right, no and matter I, what happens. I think that that's something that, as a beginner, I really, really struggled with mm. that because I was always looking for, oh, am I feeling better now? Did that work for me? <laughs> me you, you, you approach it in a very, you know, we live in an analytical That's world right, where yeah, we're exactly. always making comparisons. I, I love so. the idea of A-type personalities mm. that want to meditate mm. and they get up and go, right, at four <laughs> o'clock in the morning, I'm going to meditate tomorrow, I'm going to do it for two hours, no, three hours. And it's it's a really that sense of uh, the more I do, the better I'll get. It's not like that. And like you said, it's not outcome-based and it's such an anathema to the way we operate in the Western world. Mm. But I think it's refreshing to be able to say, I'm doing this just for the experience mm. and whatever happens is, is that is the process I still have to after 20 years I still have to remind myself sometimes before I start meditation that the process of having thoughts coming up is the process you know totally. I still have to remind myself I'm not failing by having thoughts mm. it's not that they will ever be able to stop it's more that they're there and I'm just becoming aware of them again and it yeah. just it still baffles me but I still find it an amazing process that I, I the irony for me is that sometimes it is um, a process I will never master, no. but I still enjoy the process of doing, you know? Yeah. It's really like, you know, it isn't the destination, it's the journey, correct, that correct. old adage. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I have I, a great uh, image. You touched on this a minute ago. I heard this again today, and Sam Harris, who were talking about this book, Waking Up, um, brilliant book it, it is a brilliant book actually it's really amazing <laughs> it's a brilliant book that we're not actually reading we're, li- <laughs> we're listening, we're listening to, to yes. via Audible that's right we're validated we're not sponsored by that's right. in any way <laughs> but still a great way to get access to great material um, and he was talking about um, if you try to describe meditation to people as the, princip- the process of looking through a window and what he said was when you look out the window you actually make a decision about what happens because the window allows you to see what's outside but it also reflects back at you and, the, and he said, I equate meditation as being the same process. Are you looking outside of yourself through the window at what's happening outside and being distracted? Or are you looking in it as a, as a mirror of what's happening inside of you? And I thought, wow, what a powerful image. It totally describes the process of don't be distracted. By, you'll always be distracted by what's happening outside. But you have to choose intentionally to be able to use that process as introspective and seeing what's happening to me. <coughs> oh, bless you. Um, so I think that that process is it, such a great image. And I went, wow, it, I can visualize that whole thing. And really, um, it really latched on to me. And, I, and we hadn't talked about that. So there you go. So another way to sort of express that and process. And while you're talking about windows, I'm going to share with you something that... Um one of the Hari Krishnas told me when I spent a few months staying with them, and then I will get back to yeah, my story. Yeah, I have to hear the end of this story, um, yeah. But when I, um, so I, you know, we were talking about, uh, you just mentioned about how type A, you know, personalities, yeah. we, we sometimes go really hardcore mm. in our approach. So part of my, I guess, in, interesting or, you know, depending on how you look at it, challenge in life I actually spent some time with Hare Krishnas mm. and I remember when I got there I was speaking to one of the monks and and he was asking me why I was here and I was like well I, I need to fix my life 
and I said, it's like all the windows in my house need cleaning. Mm. And I, I just need a massive spring clean. And I just, I said, I even need, maybe need to get new double glazing. <laughs> and um, on the first day he was there and he just laughed and he said, how about if you just cleaned one window? Mm. You know, you just actually like just took a cloth and really mindfully just cleaned one window. Would that, and I was like, that isn't going to be enough. <laughs> you know, all the windows in the house need replacing. You just don't understand my journey. So um, I think it, that, that, Perhaps is quite funny, but how did I end up with Hare Krishna's in the first place? Well, that is a story that maybe we might go into in another podcast. But the short version of a very long story is that um, about 10 years ago, I got made redundant from a job that I absolutely loved. Mm. I worked there for eight years and a really, really lovely company. I kind of, I ran a team. I work in audit, which is perhaps not the most glamorous of occupations, but I really liked what I did, and I I really was my job. I, my whole identity was tied up in what I did, mm. and I was totally caught up in that corporate career ladder. I remember when I got promoted to a director, I ended up having to miss a yoga class to go to some award ceremony and thinking, oh... I really want to go to that. I feel really mm. disappointed mm. that I'm going to miss my yoga class. And I, I'd sort of spent all these years striving, mm. trying to, you know, work hard, do more, get promoted. And when I did get promoted, I felt absolutely nothing yeah. apart from disappointment that I had to miss mm. my favorite yoga class. Yep. So that was a bit of a, a worrying sign. But often we get these little signals from the universe. We don't do anything about it. We just carry on regardless. Mm. So that was me. I was like, oh, you know take a check of yourself but I ended up getting made redundant from that job and it was quite stressful because the whole year before that I'd had to make all my team redundant and it was a really really tough process Mm. and it got to the point where there's just two people left in in our team um, and then we both we both went and I got offered a really really good job um, in banking that was you know a great great package and I remember having an interview with the hiring manager and he said but you know you have to work Saturdays. We like to be transparent about this. We're going to pay you XX, mm. but we expect people to work, you know, 70, 80 hours a week. And that was what I'd done, you know, since I was like 19. So I thought, no, that is my pattern to go back into that mm. kind of crazy role. I'm yeah. going to just take some time out. So decided to sort of just spend my redundancy small settlement that I got to just go traveling for a year. And the only commitment I made to myself was that I would practice yoga and meditation somewhere in the world. Mm. So I don't know if you've seen that film or read the book uh, Eat, Pray, Love Mm -hmm. by um, um, Elizabeth Gilbert or Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. I sort of did that before they did. But um, (laughs) I put on a lot more weight than Julia did in Italy (laughs) eating pasta. I had a great time. And I decided to just go on this year-long crazy adventure of trying to find myself. So the first one of the first things I did was go on a um, 30-day water fast in Thailand, where all I actually did was drink water for 30 days. You are no way an A-type personality, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. And that actually, that was quite challenging for the first five days, and then you really realise you don't need food that much, and I really enjoyed it. After that, I decided to go on a 60-day silent Vipassana yoga retreat with some monks in a cave. Um, so anyone that knows me, I'm a, a total talk fest. So 
you know, my sister cannot believe that I, I spent <laughs> 60 days not talking. It's so much easier not to eat for 30 days yes. than not talk. Well, what a ch- super yeah, challenge though, right? Um, yeah. It's a super challenge. So I found myself, um, you know, meditating in a cave. Vipassana is a style where you sit cross-legged for 12 hours a day and you say yes to everything. Mm. So if pain comes up in your back, you say yes to the pain. Mm. If you have the thought, you say yes to the thought. So, and you just literally focus on your nostrils for 12 hours a day. Um, you sleep on an inch thin mattress. It was freezing, it was cold, it was dark. Um, and most of the days I was there, I was just thinking, what am I doing here? Am I any closer to finding myself? Mm. Um, but at that point, I'd, um, and before then, like the year before then, I'd spent a few weeks volunteering with the Hare Krishnas. I really loved it. Mm. And I've always, I guess, sort of had that slightly spiritual side to myself. So when I got made redundant from this job, I was so burnt out and I was so stressed and I was pretty much pretty broken. In the back of my mind, I kind of thought, I'm done with corporate now. Mm. I'm going to go and open a yoga school. Maybe I'll become a Hare Krishna. I was having all these crazy ideas about what I was going to do, but it certainly didn't involve going back and becoming an auditor. Mm. And I remember I was on the 58th day of this retreat, and I was thinking about Hare Krishnas, and I was thinking, I wish that their colour wasn't orange, <laughs> which perhaps is very shallow of me. I was thinking I could do that if it just wasn't orange. And I was thinking, you know, would I have to shave my head and all of this sort of stuff? And there was water in this cave from the roof of the cave, and it was just dripping down on me really slowly. And it had been dripping down on me for 58 days. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've only got two days to go. Surely I should be feeling more, like, mm. enlightened now. Mm. You know, we talked about having an outcome. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was really thinking, you know, by 60 days that I, I, would, have, that I would have worked through all of my personal baggage and mm. issues. I'd, you know, let go of the anger about losing my job. And mm. I, I was just really feeling the same. Um, and... Yeah, and then sort of this especially big drip of water just sort of landed on my eyelid and literally kind of, I jolted upright. And I had just some kind of like, whether you call it a vision or an epiphany, and I just imagined a really big building full of people smiling and happy. And then I realised they had suits on and there was photocopiers and computers. And I sort of had this vision of this organisation where... People worked, they were very professional, very efficient, but they were really happy. And they were just the same people that they were on the weekend. And in that moment, I kind of thought, wow, how powerful would that be if I could go back to corporate and actually try and bring some of these practices that I'd learnt, you know, from the East and some of the skills and experiences I had to that corporate environment to try and create like real cultural shifts and mm. real change so that people could actually like be awake at work, mm. be themselves, be authentic. Um, so I kind of made a commitment to myself in that moment not to run away anymore, not to go and become a Hare Krishna, but actually kind of to run ferociously back towards the corporate world mm. and go and change it because, you know, I did a a poll of all of my friends and I was like who's happy at work who's who is relaxed calm and you know fulfilled mm. and and no one could answer yes to that everyone yeah. was stressed anxious tired mm. you know struggling and I kind of thought so many people work in an office or a government organization um that really it's our right to be happy yes and that 
companies as well would have such a better return if people were happier. And this was before I kind of knew any of the clinical evidence mm. about you know, the actual physical mental benefits of mm. mindfulness and, and mindful leadership. And there's a real argument now that it, it does improve the bottom line of businesses, yes. but it's the right thing to do. Correct. So, um, you know, fast forward many, you know, four or five years, I sort of intentionally accepted a role. Um, I knew that was the role that I was going to bring change in. Mm. I, I was very purposeful in the role that I selected in the people that I hired. Mm. And I started teaching my team mindfulness um, for a few years, and we've had some amazing results. And now I'm at the point where I'm trying to roll out mindfulness across across the company. Mm. So watch this space. Mm. We are certainly at the beginning of the journey, but the journey has begun nevertheless. Yep. And it just feels drop by yeah, drop, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a process. It's drop by drop. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So that that's a little bit about my journey. Like, Scott, do you want to maybe talk about why you're part of the compassion club mm, definitely and, and yeah i guess we we haven't spoken yet about how we met and mm. why we dis- together decided to form the compassion yeah. club and that's that's actually really quite an interesting story yeah. i think we should maybe save that for our next yeah our next podcast totally because, agree um that's an area i would like to go deep on yeah. and i think People listening would actually have a bit of a chuckle about yeah. that story. And it's, it's a good actually, story. It's a very good story, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, we'll park that. Yeah. So I'll tell you about my, my history mm-hmm. um, and how I came to be where I am today. So when I was um, when I was very young, I was an actor <laughs> and I was on TV and I did movies and I was on stage for a long time and um, and I did it only because I really loved it. So I kind of saw it as being um, where everybody else loved playing football and soccer and that sort of stuff. When I was about eight, I was in a school play and uh, and I was Wilbur the pig in Charlotte's Web. You know, <laughs> I had a lead role. I know. Um, I was a chicken in Animal Farm. Oh, nice. Exactly. So we're not so far removed. And uh, um, so I really, really loved it. I just distinctly remember um, going to the paper, because um, this was in the in the late 70s, and looking in the ads to see if there was like a theatre school near, near to me. And sure enough, there was. But I remember discreet, distinctly me going and doing it. It wasn't asking my mum and dad. I was so motivated and enjoyed it so much. So I went on and did all this other stuff and I did stuff locally just for fun and then I did TV stuff and it kind of fell into that and that was a lot of fun. Um, and when I was probably about 16 or 17, I, I distinctly remember not feeling comfortable in who I was. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't, I would never have expressed it that way, but I would have said that I felt stressed a lot. And I wouldn't, and I, maybe I was a bit of a worrier, I'm not sure it could be any number of those things. And I had to try and find ways to try and manage my stress. And I don't know how much that was me. My dad was a bit of a stress head too. So I don't know whether I picked it up from him and observed him and, and mimicked him. I'm not sure. Anyway, years go by. I was still doing acting and stuff like that. And, and, and I traveled and did a few other things. And, and I had smatterings of interest in those sort of things. But I remember coming back from living overseas for a couple of years. And I had a friend who had a book, which was... I can't recall the title. It might have been Book of Calm, something like that. I don't remember the author's name. And I remember it was talking about meditation. It was quite short and easy to read. And I thought, oh, no, I'm I'm interested in this. So I had a bit of a read. And I followed the instructions in the book. And I tried to meditate every day. And I did it every morning and every night. Wow. Um, And I was really committed, a little bit A-type personality. (laughs) Um, And 
and I actually got very, very interested in it, and so much so that I was the pendulum swung the other way, and I got very interested in all things. Um, I'll put it in inverted commas spiritual, <laughs> um, and I went into some really radical ideas, and some of them were extreme and and we can talk about those another time if we want to but i think we should definitely talk about some of those like when you worked in a metaphysical bookstore that's right yeah i think is definitely another episode that was a great experience right (laughs) and and it really allowed me to explore everything i possibly could and and all the things i did um were not in any way related to mindfulness. Mm. So, I, and in fact, there, it was the bookstore I was working in had a very big Buddhist library, had no very little interest in it. I remember going through it and look, pulling a couple of books out, but never really getting involved. There were other Buddhists there, and didn't. And we kind of talked about a few things, um, but it never really gelled with me. And I remember discreetly some people, or distinctly people, one person saying to me, "Oh, you should read this book and this book." And I really wish I took his advice back then because um, all the things that I was interested in never really gave me that sense of calm. There were ways for me to try and discover things about myself, but never really did. They were all quite ephemeral. Um, and so um, I think over the, over the years, that need to try and manage my stress and my worry and anxiety and those sort of things became more insistent. So... Uh, I went looking for other types of meditation because the meditation that I was doing, which was very much focused attention, I found less and less, gave me a sense of peace and calm. And and I'm sure there are people that use that style of meditation very successfully, Mm. but it didn't work for me. So I had to find another way. And so over time, I started looking at other methods and found other types of meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation. And that really opened things up for me and made a tremendous difference. And so the reason why I tell you all about my history as an actor was not just because it's self-aggrandizing or anything <laughs> like that. But the, what occurred to me after many years of mindfulness meditation was what I try and what the times I enjoy my meditation the most or I feel that I've really... Um, being able to stop that mental noise and just have moments of peace, I experienced when I was on stage. So when I was an actor, there is no opportunity to think about anything other than what am I doing right now and creating a real experience um, for the people that are watching you. You know, you've got a room full of um, ticket payers, uh, you know, that is bums on seats watching what you're doing. And the opportunity to think about what am I doing tomorrow, what happened yesterday does not exist. And so there was always, for me, I never had stage fright or anything like that, always a sense of calm and a sense of being in control when I was on stage. And I really enjoyed the process. And like I said, it was many years later on that I felt that I had that clarity that I was looking for in my everyday life. I found it on stage. And now, being more experienced, I sort of equated to the idea of um, extreme sports. (laughs) You know, that when you base jump or when you jump out of uh, um, an airplane or whatever it might be, you have no other opportunity to think about other, only what's happening right there and then. There's no future, there's no past, there's only that moment. And so, like you said earlier on, that process of mindfulness is about just experiencing everything in that present moment. And even though I was acting, pretending to be somebody else, I still had a real experience of mindfulness. So, um, you know, that, that was a long sort of way for me to come to sort of be in my mid-40s now where I have a much more active practice about mindfulness and obviously, like you, really want to share with people um, how to find happiness despite your circumstances, be they dire, fantastic. We all experience suffering in some way. And you could be, you know, um, James Packer with billions of dollars mm-hmm. and still be desperately unhappy simply because there's something internal inside of you that uh, the suffering we create for ourselves 
that we don't have any um, agency or um, or formal practice or method to be able to resolve that that um, those issues for us. So you know, when I talk about suffering, and like you, we're really talking about those internal processes of anxiety, worry, stress, um, you know, anger. That's right, fear. All those things that we really. I never taught how to be able to manage in a meaningful way. And that's nobody's fault. It's just simply because the information we have available to us through people like John Kabat-Zinn wasn't available to us unless you actively searched it out, like going to a metaphysical Mm. bookstore. And uh, the last thing I'll just say about that, you know, I really believed when I was going to that metaphysical bookstore, when I was was offered the job there, which was um, highly sought after, lots of competition. I was very lucky to get the job there. I really thought, wow, I'm going to go and work with enlightened people and I thought that I was enlightened too, right? I really, you know, my ego was all caught up in that process. And I thought, this is going to be an amazing experience. And I'm just going to be with like-minded people working in the store, coming up to the counter and buying books with all this knowledge and information. But you know what the reality was? Everybody was broken. Everybody, <laughs> and, and I say that with respect, that their suffering was so apparent to everybody. And everybody that came into that bookstore was desperately looking for an answer and even though they wouldn't have been able to like articulate it. That's right. Mm. They were looking for answers to solve that existential problem of I'm alive and I suffer, but I don't know how to fix the problem. And sometimes it was looking in really esoteric things that had no bearing on their everyday lives but gave them hope for the future. Or, you know, past life regression, which was a way to be able to see my problems as being maybe not my own problems. And I pay no disrespect to the process, but now with years of insight and, and I'm no expert, but I see it very differently now that the opportunity to be able to resolve those problems exists with you in the present moment. And there's some formal, simple things you can do to be able to resolve those internal conflicts in the present moment without feeling like you have to live for hope in the future based on prognostication through astrology or tarot or whatever it might have been, or looking at the things that happened in the past that you can't control and seeing them as being the cause of your suffering today. You know, irrespective of whether those th- things ha- did or did not happen in the future, or did or did not happen in the past, you still had this to live with your suffering every day. So, I th- you know, you'll feel the same way. The path is the path, right? If you'd asked me back in 1996 when I started <laughs> working in the bookstore, would I have solved all my problems? I probably would have said yes, but now looking back with the benefit of hindsight, it was all a process to get where I am today. And so really for me, like you, I just want to share that knowledge and make people's lives better. So here's a final, a final postscript to this story. So I was in a TV show in 1982, and it was this ridiculous show on the ABC. It was called Earthwatch, and it was a mixture of um, uh, environmental awareness and song and dance. It was crazy. I don't know I, what... I, I, I want to use an expletive there, so I, I'm just going <laughs> to leave you with what the... It was absolutely crazy, right? I, I look Song back and dance yeah, so... and earth. And, and, and environmentalism, and, right? It was supposed to give you some sort of sense of the things. Did they with, have joysticks? It didn't have any joysticks. <laughs> no. So sometimes it would be like ragtime music. It was all really weird. So all the kids that were on this show, they're all kids. They were all singers and <laughs> was dancers. Was it a children's show? It was a children's show on the it ABC. It gets better. It does. It does get better. <laughs> I was not a dancer. I definitely could not dance. That's fact, a disclaimer. It was just, I was woeful. I don't know. But the thing, the reason why I was mentioned Was you a is, singer? I could sing. I could sing. So I could do. So that part I could do. The dancing couldn't get couldn't get at all. But I distinctly remember them saying to me in the audition, they wanted to interview me as well as audition me, right? And in the interview, I distinctly remember them saying, "So, if you have an issue you need to talk about, 
what, how are you going to present the issue? And I said, well, I, I was only 11, right? But I did say I would want to present both sides of the argument. I would want to say for and against and try to be open about what it is, you know, that we're trying to talk about. I wouldn't want to just say it has to be this way or that way. And I also remember, and they said, so why would you want to do this? And I said, because I want to help people. Now, I was 11, and you can say you're very earnest when you're 11 and you see things very differently. But the truth of it is that hasn't changed for me. I still have the same motivation. My reasons for acting were always about trying to help people. So for me, it's like inbuilt in me to find a better way. It's not about my ego, I don't think. I think it's really about genuinely wanting people's lives to be better. And I think through compassion, but through your suffering, you come to see compassion because you experience that process of suffering inside yourself. You can see it in, in other people and you want to stop that suffering for them too. So that's kind of my journey. Scott, I think that is a remarkable journey. And Not quite I, as I, remarkable as yours. It's just a different one, though. I think we've both had some really interesting times in our lives yeah, and great true. opportunities. And I think for our listeners that are listening to this conversation, Scott also starred in an Uncle Toby's. Yes. Was it a muesli a bar? A muesli bar. So yes. if that's something that you would like to see, you can actually <laughs> go onto our website, which is compassionclub.com.au. And look on the About Us page, and you can actually check out Scott in his... How, how old were you in that? I was 11. That, I 11, picked when I was 11, yeah. I, 11 I think, I think that was his pinnacle year. You can actually see Scott performing in his uh, Uncle Toby's I effort. I am acting my heart out in that piece. And, uh, and there's, uh, there's a little bit in, in there about how that is relevant to mindfulness. Yes. So this has been a really fascinating conversation. I think we've got many stories to share. I so, agree, um, yes. Scott, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Sam. This is the first of many. So uh, for everybody, like Sam said, please go to our website, have a look at the content on there. Uh, Our blog we update regularly. We've got all the social media going on. We do have it all going on, all available from our website too. So please take the time to take a look. You can tweet at us. You can leave comments. Drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love some feedback. Absolutely. um, Thanks. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks.